Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Shreya Gupta, and today's episode is in conjunction with American Association of Endocrine Surgeons and Annals of Surgery. This is the episode that is going to be focusing on thyroid surgery guidelines. Today in conversation, we have Dr. Kapil Patel. He's the Associate Professor of Surgery and a Director of Endocrine Surgery at NYU. He's also the Research Chair of the American Academy of Endocrine, American Association of Endocrine Surgeons. He's the first author of these thyroid guidelines, and we are very excited to have him be on the podcast to be discussing these guidelines. We also have Dr. Herb Chen. He's the professor and chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Alabama. He is also the co-author of these thyroid guidelines. Very excited and happy to have you on podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You bet. Our first question for the team here is, what should every surgeon know about these new guidelines? I guess maybe I'll go first and then yeah, Kepler, yeah. who basically led this whole effort, uh, can provide sort of more substantial commentary, but I think it's very exciting to have these guidelines published by Annals of Surgery. The first time the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons have put together guidelines regarding thyroid surgery, an effort to standardize, improve the quality, and to give uh, direction for people who do this um, type of operations for trainees who are learning to do it. And then of course, for um, any uh, patients or the public to learn about what we feel is the best way to conduct thyroid surgery. And what was so exciting about this effort from an organizational standpoint is to bring together a group of experts who may have a little bit of difference in opinion about uh, the approach a little bit, but to come to a consensus where they all agree that this is um, the ideal way to approach patients who require thyroid uh, surgery. And I have to commend uh, Kepel Patel on the effort that he put forward in organizing this, uh, all the thoughts and getting us to a consensus where we have really a document that I think we can all be very proud of. Um, I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to start off by saying, honestly, that this was a, a truly a, a group effort. So each and every one of the authors on this, on this um, guidelines uh, contributed immensely to the creation of this um, of these guidelines, um, you know, the one thing you know I think that really kind of made us put these guidelines uh, forth was, I mean, I mean, in the United States right now we do over a hundred thousand thyroid surgeries a year, and the field of thyroid surgery has really evolved tremendously over the last couple of decades um, in uh, diagnosing and managing benign and malignant uh, thyroid disease. Um, and even the surgical indications and, and the paradigms have, have uh, underwent significant uh, change with new molecular information and, and new you know, cytology category. Um, so I think, you know, I think it was it was the timing that was really kind of critical. I think it was it was the right time to actually start to put all this information together. Um, you know, endocrine surgery in general is a pretty, pretty young 
um, field. And, you know, we've been around for a couple of decades now as, as dedicated endocrine surgeons. But, but having said that, I think, you know, the timing was right that we have enough information. We know enough about the biology of, of thyroid diseases that this was a, a perfect um, opportunity to, to put together a kind of a consensus-based guidelines based on, you know, on, on um, clinical uh, information that we've accumulated over the last couple of years, um, really evidence-based information. I think um, each and every one of the authors are extremely proud of these uh, guidelines, and we hope that's really going to benefit the surgical community. So if I um, were scrubbing a thyroid case tomorrow, what are, you know, sort of the b- biggest clinical points from these guidelines that you think I could take into the operating room that might not have been said before? So, I mean, I think, I mean, even if you look at like the first few recommendations, I mean, something as simple as starting off the case with like, you know, are antibiotics necessary for patients undergoing routine, you know, transcervical thyroid surgery? Um, do we need to give these patients perioperative antibiotics? And I'll tell you just from our own personal experience and, and our institution and institutions that I've trained at before, um, you know, there are a lot of surgeons who still routinely give prophylactic antibiotics. And I think something as simple as, you know, routine prophylactic antibiotics is not indicated in clean thyroid surgery. Um, I think that that recommendation in and of itself might resonate with many practitioners around the country that do thyroid surgery that routinely do give antibiotics. So I, I think, you know, something as simple as that to even more complicated, you know, scenarios where we start addressing, you know, how to manage patients with Graves' disease preoperatively before you take them to the operating room, um, you know, how to manage patients postoperatively that have recurrent thyroid cancer, uh, when to operate, when not to operate. I mean, we, we kind of touch upon all of these aspects. I mean, this really covers thyroid surgery from kind of beginning to end, all the way from benign to malignant. Yeah, and I would just add, I think it's not to be seen sort of as uh, like a book that you would go in and read just before a thyroid case, I think, as uh, Keppel pointed out, is that when you are trying to manage an individual patient and what the best thing is to approach this patient when you decide to operate on them, to look at the guidelines, knowing your particular patient and see what the scenario is and see what the experts have come up with is sort of the ideal or the best management for that particular scenario. Were any of these guidelines particularly controversial when the association was putting these together? So I would say that each and every one of the recommendations really underwent thorough review by all the members, all the, uh, the authors on the on the guidelines and and we really took what's what the best information out there is, um, the best clinical information, clinical based data that we have, to to come up with the recommendations. Um, the recommendations are graded. So you will see um, certain recommendations will have a strong recommendation based on the data available, and some of them may be weak recommendations uh, based on the data available. So, I mean, you know, so some of the controversial ones, um, you know, may have a weaker recommendation because there really isn't any really strong data to necessarily support it. However, the group as a, as a whole felt strongly enough that we should at least mention it as a, as a, as a recommendation. So I think, you know, um, to, to answer your question, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of the recommendations were heavily discussed and debated, um, sometimes almost at a point where, you know, we had to kind of just move on and say, okay, we've, we've talked about this point several times, but, um, but all for good reason, because, you know, sometimes certain recommendations don't have strong data to support them. Um, so, um, so I think, you know, you'll see a grading system in the guidelines that really help you understand what the level of evidence was when we make this recommendation. 
And I think what's so interesting in general about the practice of thyroid surgery is that although we have these recommendations, even all the experts don't necessarily agree with all of them or don't necessarily practice all of them. I think we touch on some very controversial aspects like the use of recurrent laryngeal nerve monitoring, where I think there's a group of surgeons that use it all the time and truly believe in it. And there's a group of surgeons who never use it. Um, and so although the data that we present don't really say you need to use it, I think a lot of people use it. And similarly, where we have, um, Keppel brought up the antibiotics, there's great data to support that you don't need to do it, but I routinely give antibiotics as an example. So, <laughs> and I think that, I think what Keppel, you meant to say is that we didn't say they're not indicated that they're not necessary. Yes. Correct. Yes. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. And so there's, and that's what makes, you know, the field of surgery. Um, I think, you know, surgery is both an art and a science, right? Is that people have their preferences and we generally want people to base their management on data. And sometimes as couple said, the data is not that strong. So have to make our best judgment in the individual scenario, but there are many cases where the data is pretty strong. But in the end, surgeons have to feel comfortable doing what they're doing based on, you know, their experience and what um, um, in the patient scenario. But we hope these guidelines will inform those who do this operation about what is perhaps the best practice or what the overall opinion is of these really experienced people. Uh, use of nerve monitoring, use of antibiotics are, are great examples of areas in which there's quite a bit of variation. And, um, you know, we, we, how, do, how do we uh, standardize practice and sort of embrace the individual art of, of surgery within within these standards? And another area that I noticed uh, that the guidelines comment on is the use of opioids in endocrine surgery. Can you talk to our audience about um, where, what you feel the data says on the use of opioids? I want to actually... Um... I mean, I don't know if you have a copy of the guidelines for me, but actually read the actual guide, uh, the recommendations, which uh, it was recommendation 56 of the guidelines that says that use of non-opioid and non-pharmacologic therapies in patient education should be the first line paid management after thyroidectomy. That was a strong recommendation with a moderate uh, quality of evidence. So basically what we're saying is we're trying to recommend as much as possible not to use opioid-based um, uh, therapies uh, for patients as first line for management after thyroid surgery. Obviously, a lot of this is also clinical, you know, your, your clinical um, situation and some patients may require it, but if possible, for the most part, we try to, you know, recommend avoid um, using them. I think there's, like I said, a moderate quality of evidence out there that now suggests that we can really treat these patients post-operatively without uh, non-opioid uh, uh, therapies. Yeah, and that evidence is still is magnifying. There's more and more papers coming out supporting what's already out there. And so that would be, I think, an example of one of the guidelines which may people may not, or people who don't do a lot of perhaps thyroid surgery don't aren't aware that now the field has moved into where we rarely need opiates to manage patients. And in a similar manner, and most patients are now or can be discharged the same day after an operation. So all these sort of nuances that I think have been in practice by some groups and maybe haven't been broadly disseminated, it's, it's great because the guidelines really distill what, what people have published and then try to make, I guess, the best recommendations um, for the practicing thyroid surgeon.
And interesting to note that um, non-steroidals are sort of advocated in these guidelines. So I guess the committee must have felt that any possible um, increase in reading, bleeding risk from non-steroidals is offset by the, by the reduction in opioid-related harm. Is that right? Um, yeah, that, that's actually um, a, a fair statement. So we are, I mean, in general, there are no good data to support um, the fact that there is increased bleeding risk. Now, but once again, there are a lot of surgeons out there that will not use um, you know, certain therapies because they're so they're afraid of, of, of a bleeding risk, especially, you know, in the neck, you know, when you have a cervical hematoma, it could be uh, life threatening. Um, so and, and, and that's fine. I mean, you know, that, that, that's completely OK. I think these guidelines are once again, they're, they're guidelines and they're and they're meant to, to give you an idea of what the current literature supports. And then you can use these guidelines to to, you know, hopefully apply your practice in the best way possible. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, it's, it's, it's pretty comprehensive and we we kind of try to include everything possible. Yeah, and I think that's a great example of a guideline which perhaps people, and then maybe hand down that the, it, that the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in the setting of thyroid surgery is really risky or leads to increased bleeding. Well, really there's no evidence to support that. And that's why the guidelines do suggest using that, of course, there's other contraindications such as, you know, renal dysfunction to potentially use non-steroidals. But again, a great example of how we critically reviewed what's out there and actually asked what people do in practice, right? And that is our practice um, is to avoid the opioids and use non-steroidals if there's no contraindication um, as the first line therapy for pain. And, but quite honestly, a lot of patients don't even take anything for pain that's right. Um, after the operation, so. Excellent. Another another area of thyroid surgery that seems to be rapidly evolving and um, maybe you know confusing to a lot of us is the use of molecular testing um, in advance of thyroid surgery. So could you summarize for, for us um, what you think the role of molecular testing is in today's day and age? So, I mean, I think so in general, the role of molecular testing, if you look at the guidelines, I mean, we've really limited... Um, to, to, you know, use molecular testing when you think it's going to help you in a decision-making process. So, for example, if you look at recommendation 10, it actually says if thyroidectomy is preferred for clinical reasons, then we clearly state molecular testing is not necessary. Um, and that's a strong recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. So I think, you know, the, the kind of shotgun approach where everybody gets a molecular test and we try to see what's going on is really not really uh, necessary. And if, there, if there's an indication for thyroid surgery, then you proceed with the surgery that you think is, is, is the correct um, uh, procedure and you don't need to uh, obtain molecular testing. So the first thing we're trying to say is just get it when you think it's going to help you make a decision. Um, at that point, once you think it is going to be necessary, then it's really reserved for, for um, situations in which the cytology is indeterminate. So what that means is that, you know, if your cytopathologist is not able to tell you whether a certain thyroid nodule is benign or malignant and you get an indeterminate uh, cytology, then, you know, then you may use molecular testing to maybe help guide your clinical decision making uh, to a point where it does the patient, would the patient benefit from surgery or is this nodule more likely to be benign? We can potentially follow uh, the patient without surgery. So that, that's kind of, you know, what we, you know, what we kind of focus on when we're talking about uh, molecular testing. Um, you know, we do go on to say that to date, there, there really is no indication of molecular testing in determining the extent of surgery. So we don't have any data to really support that molecular testing can be used 
to determine whether a patient would benefit from a hemithyroidectomy or total thyroidectomy or neck dissection, et cetera. So we do want to, uh, to state that as well. Um, molecular testing, you know, it is sometimes controversial. And I think we try to make it a little bit more clear um, when it should be really utilized and how it can potentially benefit the patient. Yeah, I think Keppel said it exactly right, is that the what is so powerful, I think, about sort of our view the, from the AES versus perhaps other guidelines that are out there on molecular testing is that we really focus on when it will change management or change the operation. And one of my pet peeves is that when people order tests which don't change what we do or change the operation. And so I think obviously to be very cost efficient, you have to only get tests if they really will change what you do. And I think overwhelmingly the data suggests is that molecular testing in a lot of scenarios won't change what you do, especially if there's already a reason for surgery, as Kepler said. And, and so what's so important about uh, molecular testing also, there's a, a huge number of different molecular tests that are also available and you need to utilize them only in a situation where, again, you're, it would change your clinical management and that perhaps that is cost effective. And so that, in my opinion, boils down to only very few circumstances. Um, and I think we discussed that a little in detail, but, uh, uh, my own opinion is that it's generally overutilized. We would now like to shift gears and talk about small differentiated cancers. What does the AAES guidelines state about the management of this disease? And what is your opinion on whether are we operating too much for this particular pathology? So like, I think you're referring to like well-deficient cancers that are like under one centimeter. Is that what you're talking about? Like microcarcinomas? Correct. To- yeah from micro cancers. So, you know, we, we in, in the guidelines, we do talk about the role of active surveillance, um, which basically means, you know, following patients who have uh, cancers uh, that were diagnosed, um, which are less than one centimeter, well-differentiated thyroid cancers, which are less than one centimeter um, in size. And, you know, once again, this is an evolving field, the concept of active surveillance. And what we really say is that active surveillance is, is, um, is possible, but you need to have the right patient, the right communication with the endocrinologist and the overall you know, appropriate follow-up uh, schedule for those patients. So it's definitely an option. We, we mentioned that as an option, but I think there are a lot of things that go into making the option, um, the right option. You need to have the right patient, you need to have good communication with your referring physicians and medical endocrinologists, and you need to have an appropriate follow-up schedule for those patients. Um, so um, it, is, it is mentioned in the, uh, in the guidelines. And I think in general, when you talk about those micro cancers and what we typically define micro cancers as those papillary thyroid cancers that are less than a centimeter in size, is that most of the time we don't know about them because the current, both our guidelines and other uh, societies' guidelines suggest we don't biopsy thyroid nodules that are that small. So most go undetected. And if they are detected, sometimes we find them because we're doing a thyroid operation or something else, and we find an incidental microcarcinoma within the thyroid specimen, which obviously means it's already out. So there are there are not that many circumstances, unless I'm wrong, couple, where we actually know about a microcancer before it's taken out or 
know of it while we're doing active surveillance. You know, often these nodules, small nodules, probably should never have been biopsied. Anyway, we talk about, you know, the initial evaluation of thyroid nodules, how to use the appropriate systems that are out there right now, such as the TIRAT system and the ATA uh, classification system. And the guidelines actually compare both of those also. You know, what's the indication to biopsy a thyroid nodule? You know, the problem is that when you have a nine or eight millimeter nodule that probably should never have been biopsied to begin with, that was biopsied, and now you're stuck with a well-differentiated papillary cancer, you know, it, it, that is a, a dilemma that I think as thyroid surgeons we see pretty pretty routinely. Um, and that's when the role of active surveillance potentially comes into, into play because usually, you know, these nodules are, those small nodules are, are incidentally found. Excellent. So to step back, we, we've talked a lot about a few, you know, controversial areas of thyroid disease and areas in which there's, there's a little bit of variation in practice. And, and, and ultimately, guidelines are about standardizing best practice across uh, the field. And so as practicing endocrine surgeons and, and leaders in the field, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this variation in clinical practice. And so what were the biggest areas, uh, apart from what we've already discussed, what were the biggest areas of practice variation that you were aiming to standardize practice in, in thyroid surgery? I, I don't know if we had one particular or particular areas that we're really trying to standardize. I think, you know, I think what you know, I kind of mentioned earlier, I think there's just so much variability right now in the way, you know, thyroid surgery is, is practiced, you know, um, even amongst, you know, academic institutions, amongst, you know, practitioners in, in, in private practice, ENT surgeons, general surgeons. Um, and I think, you know, the goal here was really to kind of accumulate all the data that we can to really try to standardize things. I mean, from nerve monitoring, from preoperative laryngoscopy, who needs it, who doesn't need it, when should we be doing it? You know, because I mentioned using antibiotics, steroids, you know, pain control. I mean, I think there was diversity across the board, almost on every topic. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, or, I mean, I feel like even managing Graves patients, you know, some there were there were people on the uh, on the um, author list that used, you know, routine, you know, Lugol solution or, or SSKI, um, and there were others that said we don't use it at all. Um, there was discussion about when to use devices such as a harmonic or ligature as far as, you know, sealing devices versus, you know, not using them, using metal clips. I mean, this discussion went on quite, quite a bit. I think ultimately the best thing about this is that we were able to, where possible, provide evidence as to what, you know, what may be the most preferred um, uh, technique or, or treatment. Yeah, I think a couple of hit it right on the head is that, you know, when we think about um, trying to improve quality in surgery, part of it is to take out the variation there could be um, to try to narrow to a, a common way of practicing or common beliefs in practicing. And even amongst people who do a lot of thyroid surgery who are included in this group, we saw, you know, perhaps a wide variation. And I think part of the discussion that ensued is that I think some people ended up sort of changing or thinking about changing the way they practice based on going on the data and really I think Keppel hit it right on the head when we talked about the variation that exists in practices uh, throughout the country or throughout the world is that I think to improve quality, we really want to reduce the variation in the day-to-day -day practice of thyroid surgery. And it became clear as we go went through discussing all these very specific points about how people do operations, as even among the experts, there existed some variation. But I think through talking about it and reviewing the data, which I think is nicely presented in this paper, 
to really get people thinking about how can I make my practice um, more in line with what the data supports to decrease the variation to get us to a place where this, if we decrease the variation, we can improve the quality. And really that's what this gets at, is that how can we make thyroid surgery better for patients and reduce complications, reduce costs, and optimize uh, the outcomes? I think that was an excellent summary, Dr. Chen. Um, I think that, I think just to wrap up this podcast, would you um, and Dr. Patel just kind of tell us your you know, summary points or your biggest points from uh, from doing the these AAES guidelines? I will just sort of build upon what I just said and give a couple of the last words since he did uh, the lion's share of the work in putting these together. But you know, when these uh, these guidelines are just guidelines, they're basically to provide a reference for surgeons who perform this operation about how perhaps most ideal way to approach a patient who needs thyroid surgery and how to conduct the operation to provide the safest and the um, lowest cost um, operation. And in doing so, uh, I think is to acknowledge that the this variation exists amongst all of us, but how can we uh, work together to improve outcomes for patients. And like I said, this is, I would expect what would happen after these are published is that we'll get some comments from people that are in practice and it will allow us to then go perhaps create a second edition where we get more people on board and then we even get to focus the ideas even more. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, mean, I think these um, these um, AES sponsored um, you know, guidelines, I mean, first thing I think we should mention, this is also multidisciplinary. Um, these were guidelines, not just surgeons, but we also had a pathologist, we had medical endocrinologists, you know, it was the ENTs and, and general surgeons all combined. So it's got multidisciplinary uh, guidelines. And it really kind of used, you know, and analyzed you know, the current indications and, and outcomes of, um, of adult thyroid surgery um, by, by a comprehensive evidence-based review mechanism of the, of the medical literature. So I think, you know, I think, like I said, we're all extremely proud of the final product um, these guidelines are exactly that, they're just guidelines and they're evolving. And as new information comes out, even in the last couple of months, you'll see that as, as time goes on, that some of these, you know, guidelines may obviously will definitely need to be uh, updated, um, as time goes on. So, um, but, but now I think it really, for the first time, at least from a surgical standpoint, I think for the first time we have a document that we can say that for the most part summarizes what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Excellent. And now what's next from the AAS um, you know, research group? And, and, and what do you think the next uh, project that you'll work on will be? So full disclosure, I'm no longer the chair of the research committee. So <laughs> off that I'm off that, uh, that role. But, um, but I think, I think, you know, these, these guidelines, so this, this was like, you know, so parathyroid guidelines came out in 2016 and this was the second, the second wave of, of, of guidelines as far as from uh, AES sponsor, we had the parathyroid group. Now we have this thyroid guidelines that are fully comprehensive. And I think these have both served as a model for endocrine diseases in general. And I think, you know, I mean, the thought process is to move on to other aspects of endocrine surgery, such as adrenal guidelines and secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism um, uh, type of uh, guidelines. But um, but I think as, as you know, the AES, you know, we'd like to think of ourselves at least uh, somewhat as 
as leaders in the field of endocrine surgery. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's really just an honor. And honestly, you know, it's, it's a pleasure working with, with all these people on these guidelines. Great. Well, as we wrap up, I want to uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for your important work uh, creating these guidelines, putting together hundreds and hundreds of, of papers to, to give us some concrete recommendations for practice. And I also want to note that these guidelines will be, be available for free for everyone uh, to access on the Annals of Surgery website for two years. So anyone going into a thyroid surgery um, case or an endocrine uh, rotation can have these handy and have an up-to-date review of everything that you need to know about thyroid surgery today. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.